Hi, this is John Harcher, and welcome to episode 31 of Keep On Grooving. Today we'll take a bit of a different track and look and see what else was going on at the time Jimi Hendrix was blazing through the music scene. Over the next two episodes, we'll see what Eric Clapton was doing during the 1966-1970 era. They were already writing Clapton is God on the walls of London. Now we'll see what he created before he rested in 1971 for not-so-good reasons. Now, before we get started, a keep on grooving update. The Denver show that we were talking about last time from June 23rd, 1970, according to the Day by Day 1970 book, it does mention the Denver show was scheduled but canceled. Again, thanks to the guys over at the Hoffman Boards for digging this up. Now back to our regularly scheduled episode. Episode 31, Eric Clapton, 1966-1968, Cream, and the Beatles. Now, this whole thing was kind of my brother-in-law Chuck's idea. He's a loyal listener, and he asked if I was ever going to be doing something on anyone else, like, uh, like The Who or Zeppelin or anybody like that. I hadn't really intended to, but it got me thinking about it. So at some point, I came up with the idea of the parallel careers what was such and such doing when jimmy was around so that gave me an avenue to do the who but i need to kind of do a little bit more research on this era of their career there's a lot of different singles different mixes different all kind of things going on you know even though i've been a who fan for over 40 years at this point longer than most of the other bands i like um so then i came up thinking like, oh, well, who else could I do? Whose career closely paralleled Jimmy's? And I came up with the idea for Clapton. So that's where these next two episodes come from. As usual, as I started writing it, it began as one episode, and as I kept going, it became two. So be prepared. When Jimmy arrived in London, it said the first thing he wanted to do was to meet Eric Clapton. Even though he hadn't had much chart success, he'd already begun to make a name for himself among musicians' circles. Success would come and go several times over his six-decade career. This is the time of his first major run of popularity. Eric Clapton was born on March 30th, 1945. He just had his 78th birthday a few weeks back. He had an odd upbringing, not in how he was raised, but by who. His parents were quite a bit older than the ones for the other kids his age, and his sister was a lot older than he was. Eventually, the truth came out. His sister was actually his mother, and his parents were, in fact, his grandparents. His father was a Canadian pilot who'd been in England during the war. He also had a family back in the Great White North, so awkward to say the least. Eric got his first guitar at age 13, but it wasn't the best guitar. I mean, I had a rough one, too, for my first guitar. So he didn't really get into it for the next couple of years. Then, like Jimmy, once he got into it, he couldn't put it down. He was in art school, but got kicked out since he was really hung up on the music. Eventually, he joined up with a band named The Roosters and played a few dates with Casey Jones and the Engineers. 
1963, he joined the Yardbirds, replacing the now recently passed away Tony Top Topper. Now, they tried to be real blues artists. They even got a chance to play some gigs with Sonny Boy Williamson, which was an eye-opener to the young British men. They recorded a couple singles, which didn't do much chart-wise. They did better with an album called Five Live Yardbirds, which sort of encapsulated what made the band interesting during that time. So their producer, Giorgio Gomelski, arranged for them to record a more pop-oriented single, For Your Love. Eric Balk saying it wasn't the direction he wanted to go in. He did play in the middle section of the song and got the B-side called Got to Hurry all to himself for a guitar workout. But he decided to leave the band, offering Jimmy Page as a replacement. Page demurred and offered his friend Jeff Beck, who got the job. There's much more to that story. We'll deal with it another time. After that, Eric bounced around through much of 1965. He hooked up with British blues impresario John Mayall, then left a few months later. He joined Jimmy Page in the studio to record a number of songs which ended up being recycled on any number of bargain basement releases. I wonder if Ed Chalpin had any dealings with immediate records. He then went back to John Mayall and the Blues Breakers, and early in 1966, they recorded their self-titled album, nicknamed the Beano Album, after the comic Eric was reading on the cover. Around the same time, he recorded some songs with a one-off group called Powerhouse that included Spencer Davis group keyboardist and singer Steve Winwood and Grand Bond organization bassist Jack Bruce. We'll be hearing more from these two guys very soon. It was around this time the phrase Clapton is God started appearing on the walls of London streets. Eric never particularly cared for this. There's really only one or two photos of it actually still around. His favorite one is Clapton has got his spray painted on a fence. And there's something extra in the photo, as, as he would put it in. You have Clapton's gold, you know, right there. And then you look down in the corner and there's a dog peeing on the wall. You know, I said, West is old now, done, doesn't it? Clapton decided to leave the Blues Breakers in mid-1966. He was replaced by Peter Green. Drummer Huey Flint soon left and was briefly replaced by Ainsley Dunbar, then by Mick Fleetwood. Bassist John McVie had briefly left, but like Eric came back. A year later, Green, McVie, and Fleetwood headed off to start their own band. The Fleetwoods was already taken as a name, the Green McVees would have been a fun-sounding name, but they opted to name it after their rhythm section, Fleetwood Mac. Christine, God rest her soul, Bob, Stevie, and Lindsay are still far off in the horizon. Now, Eric's idea was to get a band together of the best players, so he focused on his recent collaborator, Jack Bruce, on bass. Not only did they play together in Powerhouse, but Jack filled in for John McVee when he briefly left the Blues Break. On drums, Eric said he wanted to play with Ginger Baker, drummer for the Grand Bond organization. Now, Jack and Ginger played with Bond at the same time, and he didn't always get along so well. Ginger brought up it might not be such a good idea to have him and Jack in the same band, but Eric was persistent, so he relented. The trio came together and sort of became the first super group of three hot players. In a kind of ballsy move, they referred to themselves 
in the band name as knowing they were the best cream or the cream, depending on the day. In their early live shows, the band concentrated on the old blues songs they cut their teeth on in their earlier groups. But when it came time for their own single, they decided to do something a bit more obscure. Wrapping Paper was more of an old-timey tea house type of tune, complete with a piano and viola by Jack. It was also written by Mr. Bruce and his frequent writing partner, Peter Brown. Wasn't exactly what the audience was looking for, and it ended up just kind of hanging around the middle of the UK charts. But their next single did much better chart-wise and left a far better impression on audiences. I Feel Free, not to be mixed up with another feedback classic, I Feel Fine, came out a few months later and played up the strengths of the band. It starts off with a three-part harmony. Ginger is doing a drum-inspired bum-bum-bum-bum-bum-bum. Bum, 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 bum. Then Eric starts chiming in with a relaxed singing of the title, I Feel Free. And then Jack does some sort of forceful humming of the main melody. They go all the way through like a whole, and then before the band kicks right in. Then when Jack does like the middle type verse, the rest of the band drops out and a droning piano plays underneath them. I wonder if this helped inspire Jimmy with some of his piano parts. Then when Eric comes in with the solo, it starts off in like a totally different key than the rest of the song. It's off on its own direction for a bit and then settles into the song's structure. He even switches from his rhythm pickup right at the end to the lead one. So you go from the fuzz to the sharp, punchy sound. Now, surprisingly, apart from BBC recordings, it doesn't look like this was played live at all. It's too bad. They could have had a good workout on it. Now, right around this time is when our streams cross. Cream is starting to make noise out on the concert circuit. They played a lot, sometimes four or five days in a row, just constantly, sometimes a couple shows a day. Ooh. On October 1st, 1966, at Regent Polytechnic, Chaz Chandler, former bassist for the Animals, showed up with his new client, a guitarist from America named Jimi Hendrix, whose goal in coming to England was first to meet Eric Clapton. They met, and the two guitarists got along well enough. The other two guys weren't particularly thrilled. Then he asked to sit in with them, which was unheard of. Who's going to sit in with the three best guys in music? But somehow Jimmy managed to get on stage and suggested the old Howlin' Wolf song, Killing Floor, as a jam. There's no audio of this, for from the descriptions that came out of it, we can picture Jimmy doing a Monterey-like version, leaving Jack and Ginger stumped. Needless to say, Eric was impressed, but for some reason, Jack needed another show, one in January 1967, to be fully convinced. It was then he came up with his own tribute to Jimmy. We'll get to that one soon enough. In November, the band released their first album, Fresh Cream. For the most part, Side 1 had originals and Side 2 had blues covers, with the exception of a final song on each side. Jack was the primary songwriter, along with Pete Brown and Jack's wife, Janet Godfrey. The album opened with NSU, which was not named after a popular motor scooter of the time, but after nonspecific urethritis. Wish they'd done it after the scooter. 
Next was a bluesy number, Sleepy Time Time by Jack Janet. Third was Dreaming, a song by Jack that sounded very close to the style of wrapping paper. Next was Sweet Wine by Ginger and Janet, which sounds a lot like a follow-up to I Feel Free with the three-part vocal opening. The slide closer is an epic cover of the blues classic by Helen Wolf, Spoonful. It included a lot of Eric jamming and some harmonica from Jack. Side two started off with the B-side to wrapping paper, the old blues chestnut cat squirrel. Jimmy also included it as part of his experiencing the blues catfish blues medley, and Jethro Tull did a version of it for their first album, This Was. Next was Eric's only lead vocal of the album, a cover of Robert Johnson from Forward to Lee, just leaving off the front part. They just call it Forward to Lee. Clapton had done a cover of Robert Johnson's Ramblin' On My Mind as his sole vocal on the Blues Breakers album, and it wouldn't be the last time Cream dipped into the Bluesman's catalog. Next came Jack's harmonica spotlight in the guise of their version of Rollin' and Tumblin', best known at the time as done by Muddy Waters. Next to last on the LP was I'm So Glad, an old number by Skip James. The final song in the album was Ginger Spotlight Toad. He'd done a couple of drum-centric songs with Graham Bond, including Camels and Elephants. This one is named after a different animal. After a short intro with Eric and Jack, Baker takes up most of the rest of the five-minute song with a drum solo. It was certainly an influence on John Bonham and Led Zeppelin, who also chose the name of an animal for their drum solo song. Now, this was the era where albums were mostly in mono, but some people started doing stereo mixes as well. Back in the mid-60s, bands and engineers seemingly weren't so much interested in providing an interesting mix of instruments in the sound space. They just wanted one set of sounds on the left and a different set of sounds on the right. If there was something in the middle, that's fine, but it was probably more a flaw than a feature. Fresh Cream is one of those stereo mixes. If you do end up listening to it these days, don't do it with the headphones on. You'll just get annoyed. The mono mix is very nice sounding, layered and all. Nothing gets lost or smothered. There were two more songs recorded for the album that got released. You Make Me Feel was basically a demo that didn't get developed, but frankly, it's about the same level as Dreaming, just a little more pop-oriented. It didn't get released until the 90s box set, Those Were the Days. The other song did get released at the time in certain places. The Scandinavian version of Fresh Cream didn't include I Feel Free, but did include wrapping paper at the end of side one and the coffee song in the middle of side two. Now, the band didn't particularly like the coffee song and didn't want it released, but somehow, instead of using the other single, the Scandinavians used this song. Now, the U.S. version on Atco did a familiar thing. They decided to include I Feel Free as the album opener but only one of 10 songs on the album, so they dropped Spoonful. They tried to make up for it by releasing it as a two-part single, but needless to say, it didn't do too well. The song was included in full on the Best of Cream album that was released in 1969. The first CD issues of the album included the two singles and the coffee song in addition to the 10-track original album. It was then trimmed back to an 11-track version, keeping I Feel Free at the beginning. My own personal Fresh Cream track list consists of the 13 tracks for the CD, and you make me feel to balance out the quote-unquote sides. 
Side one is I feel free, NSU, sleepy time, time, dreaming. You make me feel sweet wine, spoonful. Side two, cat squirrel, from four until late, rolling, tumbling, coffee song, wrapping paper. I'm so glad and toad. Even from the early days, the band was on the road constantly, so guess it wasn't just the Mike Jeffrey thing. For six months, they covered the UK several times and in early 1967, headed over to the continent for some shows. Then at the end of March, they finally hit the US shores as part of DJ Murray the K's packet shows. Unfortunately, it didn't let them stretch out much. They were on the bill with five other acts. They had three shows a day, so they ended up basically doing just one song a show. They went back to the UK to do more touring, but then returned to the US to make their next album. This time they'd work with two men who'd stay with them through the rest of their brief career. The album would be produced by Felix Papillardi and engineered by Tom Dow. Over about a week in mid-May, they'd record the album that would become Disraeli Gears. They had to do it that quickly since their work visas expired then. The album title comes from a misnomer about a bicycle part that sounded similar to the 19th century English prime minister. The first strong strange brew has a strange origin. The band had been doing an arrangement of the old blues song, Lordy Mama. They cut it for the album, but Papillardi came up with the idea for a different arrangement. Eric would even do a solo reminiscent of Albert King. For some reason, they felt neither version worked, so Felix and his wife, Gail Collins, came up with a new set of lyrics and had Eric sing them in a different-for-him falsetto. Thus, Lottie Mama became Strange Brew. Next up is Sunshine of Your Love, Jack's Tribute to Jimmy. Pete Brown had come up with the lyrics for the song earlier. Now, as I mentioned, for some reason, Jack wasn't really moved when Jimmy sat in with them back in October, but after going with Eric to see him at the Savile Theater at the end of January 1967, that struck him, and he came up with the riff uh, that sort of resembled what Jimmy was doing. Of course, Jimmy later returned the favor and regularly covered the song in 1968 and 1969. It ended up being a hit single for Cream in the U.S., making it all the way up to number five. The song also introduced what became known as the woman tone. When Eric would play some of his leads, he would turn off the treble for all intents and purposes, leaving a very fuzzy tone to the playing. Supposedly, the song's pace was originally similar to an unused demo, Hey Now Princess. But Ginger thought they should slow it down a bit. I think that was a good idea. Next on the album is World of Pain, a Felix and Gail song. It sounds like a follow-up of sorts of Strange Brew with Eric taking the vocals again and then doing the falsetto on the chorus. Jack and Pete's Dance the Night Away isn't anything like Van Halen's. It's sort of minor key dirgy, that kind of thing. The side ends with Ginger's first vocal for the band, Blue Condition. It's sort of a waltzy sing-song type of thing. There's also an alternate version with Eric on vocals, but it's Ginger's song, so they went with his take. Side 2 begins with, I think, is the first major rock song recorded with the foot wah-wah pedal, Tales of Brave Ulysses. It was written by Clapton and artist Martin Sharp. Sharp ended up doing the psychedelic cover for the album. Jack takes lead vocals, and it relates a relationship to the roughest portions of the Odyssey. Eric quickly showed a mastery of the pedal, 
probably equaled only by Jimmy when he got his chance to work with it later that year. Next was another song by Jack and Peter. She walks like a bearded rainbow or slobber. It's another quick one at barely two and a half minutes. The woman tone drives this one. Speaking of dirgy, another uh, dirge by Jack follows with We're Going Wrong. Looking at the rest of the 60s, little did he know. A cover of Outside Woman Blues sung by Eric is up next. Very heavy on the woman tone. Jimmy utilized the main lick for this song as part of his extended versions of Fire. Um, Rockin' Little Number by Bruce and Brown, Take It Back, is next to last on the LP. The album ends with a unique rendition of an old song, Mother's Lament, about a little baby who's so small he goes right down the drain when he's having a bath in the sink. The boys give it an additional twist by using some of the heaviest Cockney accents you'll hear this side of Michael Caine, Cary Grant, or Audrey Hepburn. Not exactly what people were expecting at the end of the album, but as they often say, hey, it was the 60s. Recordings later would turn up for both Lordy Mamas, a couple of demos from the album, and a few for songs Jack would do after the band ended. More on that later. The album was a big hit on both sides of the Atlantic when released in November, hitting the top five in both the U.S. and U.K. Before that, the band returned to the U.S. for a tour that summer. They'd been invited to play at Monterey Pop but declined. They, they kind of regretted it, thinking it made them look like they thought they were too good for it. But when the band did hit that area in Northern California, it left an impression on them. As they did their sets, the audience called out for them to just play. So they began playing songs longer and longer and longer and longer until that became their reputation. When Disraeli Gears came out, it might have been surprising to those who'd seen them that summer totally jam out with all these short songs on it. The recording for the band's next LP began before Disraeli Gears came out, but was nowhere near as focused. It took the better part of six months to record the studio songs. But that didn't capture the other wild side of the band. With that in mind, they decided to record some live dates in the San Francisco venues Winterland and Fillmore. These put on tape many of the epic renditions they were becoming known for. But as they were doing that, as well as record songs for their next album, Clapton stumbled on the debut record by a group of musicians who'd been the backing band for Ronnie Hawkins and later Bob Dylan. They called themselves simply The Band, and the album was music from Big Pink, named after their house in upstate New York. As you listened, Eric thought, you know, this is more what I'd like to do. Right around that time, Jack and Ginger started arguing again, so it came to a point that they decided it was time to call it a day. But they had so many commitments already scheduled, they decided to target the end of the year as when they would bring things to a close. First up was the new album, Wheels of Fire, which came out in June 1968 in the U.S. and a month later in the U.K., it was a rarity of sorts, a double album. The cover was again by Martin Sharp, but in a bold silver color. The first album would contain the studio songs. The second would have a number of songs from their live concerts. The studio album opened with the Bruce Brown classic White Room. The cellos at the opening provided a counterpart to Eric's heavy wah-wah use at the end of the song. 
In fact, it's very similar in structure and chord progressions to Tales of Brave Ulysses. It was Cream's second and final top 10 hit in the U.S., hitting number 9. This was followed by a cover of Howl and Wolf's Sitting on Top of the World. The band had been performing it almost since the beginning of their career, but it took until now to record it. The final two songs on the side were almost psychedelia at its purest. Passing the Time was the first of three songs that utilized poems from obscure poet Mike Taylor with music provided by gender. The song goes from quiet bells ringing to Baker's frantic drumming before slowing down again. The original take was almost six minutes. The album utilized a little over four and a half. The final song on side one just had Jack and Ginger, with Bruce doing both acoustic guitar and cello. As you said, began pointing away from Cream and towards the direction Jack would take as a solo artist. Side two begins with another Baker-Taylor composition, a spoken word piece called Pressed Rat and Warthog. If you want to try to figure out exactly what this is about, be my guest, it's certainly unique. Pressed Rat and Warthog closed down their shop. They didn't want to, t'was all they had got. Saying a ton of apples and amplified heat and pressed rats collection of dog legs and feet. Perfectly clear as far as I'm concerned. What's the confusion? Next up is the Bruce Brown song Politician, which was written in the downtime during a BBC session. The bass guitar interplay became popular when performed live. Those Were the Days was the third Baker-Taylor combo with plenty of odd instruments making all kind of kooky noises all throughout the song. A cover of Albert King's Born Under a Bad Sign was next to last. I kind of thought Jack would really wail out on the last line, but he kept it reserved. Surprisingly, it wasn't performed live much by them, if at all, compared to Sitting on Top of the World. The album ended with another Bruce Brown composition, Deserted Cities of the Heart, with the cello providing an interesting counterpoint to what the rest of the band was doing. There was at least one more song recorded during the sessions. Anyone for Tennis was an acoustic number by Eric and Martin Sharp. It didn't make the record, but was the theme from the biker flick, The Savage Seven. It stars genre regulars Robert Walker Jr. and Adam Rourke, and featured an early appearance by Laverne DeFazio herself, Penny Marshall. It didn't make the first Best of Cream collection, but appeared on later compilations. A single release didn't do much on the charts, but the guys did mime it during an appearance on the Smothers Brothers show. Other outtakes may have been lost during the Universal Fire in 2008, though there are rumors some may have been found for a possible box set. More on that later. The second album had four live songs. It was labeled live at the Fillmore, but similar to the confusion that surrounded Jimmy's Paris San Francisco CD, it turns out only one of the four songs actually came from the Fillmore. The rest were recorded at Winter. The album starts out with their blazing cover of Robert Johnson's Crossroads. Now, Clapton has had a long relationship with the song. It was one of three he recorded with Powerhouse, though Steve Winwood took vocals on that version. Cream started doing it early on several BBC appearances that were closely modeled on the Powerhouse version. But this one starts out fast and loud right from the start. It's over and done in four minutes. Now, there's a weird little hiccup right before the final verse where things change abruptly, so much so that for years people thought it was an edit of a much longer version. But Bill Levinson, 
<laughs> Wikipedia calls him Barry. He's not the film director, guys. Uh, Bill Levinson confirmed when he was doing the Crossroads box set that there was no edit in the tape and practically all the versions of the song through all the concerts they recorded were generally the same length. It was a top 40 hit and has remained a classic rock staple ever since. The rest of the side is consumed by a 17-minute version of Spoonful. If you thought the six-and-a-half-minute version on the original album was long, this was something else. This was the kind of song the band's reputation was built on. At some point, the guys are all, all kind of doing their own thing, and then eventually they all come back to the main riff. Epic doesn't begin to describe it. It was different than what the Grateful Dead were doing, which was sort of a structured meandering, whereas the Allman Brothers later perfected what I'd call structured improvisation. This was three guys just going all out. Side 4 kicked off with a solo song from Jack on the Harmonica, Train Time. He'd first recorded it back on one of the early Graham Bond albums and was a live staple for them as well when Jack was in the band. Ginger plays a snare like a train rolling down the track. At some points, Jack is so into it, he almost forgets to breathe for anything other than to put air through the harmonica. You need some of that stuff inside you, Mr. Bruce. Take a breath. The final song is the only one actually recorded at the Fillmore, a version of Toad that's almost as long as Spoonful. Only this time, obviously, Ginger takes the soloing all to himself. It may not have been the first rock drum solo. I thinking I got a DeVita would be the first one that got widespread attention. But this would basically be the template for everyone going forward. You know, John Bonham took it in one direction. Neil Peart took it in another direction. Carl Palmer lost his shirt. Literally. Now, the one included on the Those Were The Days box set edits in a little musical break they did in one version from another night, but the drum solo remains intact. Once the album was out, the band set out on their farewell tour. Once again, they had some concerts on the West Coast set to be recorded intended for their farewell album. The intention was to do a similar release to Wheels of Fire, a studio album and a live album. Unfortunately, the band couldn't really get together more than a few songs. Jack's contribution was another song with Pete Brown doing that scrapyard thing, it's very piano-driven, and his singing on the mid-verse sections sound more than a little like Peter Gabriel would in a year or so on those early Genesis albums. Ginger's uh, contribution was the final song on the album, What a Bring Down, appropriate name for a closing song on an album called Goodbye. Eric uh, did the vocals on that. He also did the vocals on his own song, and ended up getting some very famous help with it. Now, somewhere along the way, Eric struck up a friendship with George Harrison. He had some interaction with the Beatles, notably as a side part of Paul's June 4th Savile Theater story about Jimmy. You know, Jimmy's guitar goes out of tune. You know, he stops, he said, hey, is Eric here? Can you come up and retune this man? But as fellow guitar players, he and George had a lot in common, though their styles are pretty different. As Cream was winding down, the Beatles were in the midst of recording their own double album epic known as The White Album. George had been trying to make his own mark as a songwriter. Kind of tough when you're in a band with the most successful songwriting duo in modern hip-hop history. 
One of the songs he came up with for the album was called While My Guitar Gently Weeps, and he played the demo for Eric. Clapton liked it. Then George asked him to play on the song. Eric was a bit hesitant. I mean, you just don't go play on a Beatles song out of nowhere. But Harrison insisted, and Clapton's appearance in the studio made the rest of the band, who were somewhat non-committal to the song, put in a little extra effort. When it came time to mix the song, Eric requested the solo be made to sound a little less him. So the Georges, George Harrison and George Martin, decide to run the solo through a type of vary speed, creating a Leslie sort of warbling effect. It certainly does sound different than most of Eric's usual work. Now, despite not being credited on the album, word got out and the song became a radio staple. Over the past 50 years, it's only gained greater respect. Like When I started listening to classic rock back in the, like, the mid-80s, uh, whenever they do those yearly countdown things, it would kind of be in the middle of the uh, all-time favorite lists that usually had Stairway, Freebird, and a song we'll talk about later. You know, they're the ones that were always on top. But over the past couple of years on Q104 in New York, it's been solidly in the top 50. I think this year it was, I think it was almost in the top 30. I think it was like number 32 or something like that. This team up led to some future collaborations. First up to return the favor, George helped Eric come up with a song for the Cream album. They threw some ideas around. Supposedly Ringo also helped out. At one point, George is writing things down and Eric came over to take a look at what he was doing and he saw a word on the page like, Oh, you've called a badge then. Oh, that's not badge. It says bridge. Oh, well, since we don't have another name for it, why don't we call it badge then? And that's how the song got its name. The lyrics are a whole bunch of non sequiturs. Uh, Eric gives Ringo credit for the talk about the swans that they live in the park. That's Ringo's line. And maybe even uh, the kid that marries Mabel, that too. The solo has a great Leslie sound to it, and then after the last verse, it just kind of sails off into silence. And Badge later became a popular part of Clapton's stage shows, where he'd, you know, he'd do the song, and then at the end, he'd reprise the solo section. Then as they're jamming out towards the end of the uh, song, the whole band, the Eric, the backing singers, everybody would go, Where is my Badge? Where is my badge? Some people thought it meant he didn't get his registration and recognition from one of the services over in England. But when people would ask Eric about it, he'd no, it's all nonsense. I mean, he's absolutely nothing. On the album's original pressing, George doesn't get writing credit, and his guitar playing is credited to Leandro Misterioso. When it popped up on Best of Cream a little later in 1969, Harris's name was added as co-writer. Cream played Royal Albert Hall for their final shows with a band named Yes Opening Up. Hmm. wonder whatever happened to them. The shows were recorded, and shockingly, the film came out almost immediately, as opposed to someone else's Royal Albert Hall film. So Cream was done, but Eric went right back to work almost immediately. Impressed George was able to get Clapton to play on his session, 
John Lennon then got Eric to play with him on a one-off band he put together for something the Rolling Stones were doing called the Rock and Roll Circus. It sat in the vaults for years, supposedly because the Who's performance of a quick one that appeared in The Kids All Right overshadowed the host so much they were a bit embarrassed. Don't know the truth behind this, but it did finally make it out in the 90s. So we got to see Mick and the boys do an early version of Can't Always Get What You Want. Jethro Tull was there with a filling guitarist who'd soon be in a band with someone more frantic than Ian Anderson, if that could be possible. The guitarist, Tony Iommi. And John Lennon's one-off band consisting of himself, Eric, Mitch Mitchell, and Keith Richards on bass was called The Dirty Max. They performed Your Blues, a song off of the White Album. They also played along when Yoko did what Yoko does. So Cream was broken up, but they still released a number of albums. First up was the appropriately named Goodbye. As mentioned, it was originally planned as a double album, but when the guys couldn't come up with new studio songs, it was a very short single album. Side One has two live songs from the L.A. Forum recorded October 19, 1968. First is an epic rendition of an old blues song they covered on Fresh Cream, Skip James's I'm So Glad. The album version was three and a half minutes, this one is nine and a half minutes. Think of it as a shorter version of Spoonful from Wheels of Fire. Jack and Eric sing on the choruses, where on the album version, it's just Jack. The short side ended with Politician, which showed why this became a popular live song for Jack to do for the rest of his career. Side two started out with one more live song, Sitting on Top of the World from Wheels of Fire. As mentioned, they'd been doing this song their whole career, and surprisingly, it was kept around the same length as the studio version. I think it may actually be like five or six seconds shorter. Then after that, it's the three studio songs, Badge, Doing That Scrapyard Thing, and What a Bring Down, over and done in barely over 30 minutes. Some CD versions later added Anyone for Tennis. They might have included one more song to flesh out the side a bit, but it still would have been a short album. A best of album followed before the year was out with an interesting cover full of fruits and vegetables. Guess someone thought they went well with cream. Then in 1970, Live Cream was released. Surprisingly, it avoided anything resembling their big hits focusing on the jam songs. Like the live album on Wheels of Fire, it had three songs from Winterland and one from the Fillmore, plus an extra. A 10-minute NSU started off the album. It was a frequent show opener in that period. Next is a somewhat normal but still extended by a bit sleepy time time. Then the surprise. The Laudy Mama with the Strange Brew backing track. Odd thing to do, but I guess they had to pad the side out a little bit. Side 2 began with a 15-minute version of Sweet Wine, followed by the song for the Fillmore, a semi-extended Rollin' and Tumblin'. The album sold very well, hitting the top 20 in the U.S. and top 5 in the U.K., so more was bound to follow. It took two years, but Live Cream Volume 2 came out in 1972. It had three songs from Oakland in October 1968 and three songs from Winterland in March of 1968. The album starts out with the last song on the last Cream studio album, Deserted Cities of the Heart. White Room was next, a bit sparse with Jack and Eric yelling to cover as the strings. Eric would later use the wah-wah pedal to enhance the opening. Then they put out another version of Politician, this one a minute shorter than the one on Goodbye. 
Strange they would do that, but looking at the set list from March and October, they really didn't have anything else to use. The only thing I think they could have used was we're going wrong in eight-minute version from March. That's still in the vaults in some form. It's on Wolfgang's vault, or was at one point. I know I recorded it from there. The side ends with one of the March songs, Tales of Brave Ulysses, and a bit of an extended performance. Side two was the jammy one. It opened with Sunshine If You Love, which you'd think would be a little cooler and extended version, but it didn't quite reach its potential in that form until Eric was doing it in the 80s and 90s. The album ends with a 13-minute epic version of Steppin' Out. This is a song Powerhouse did, so Eric and Jack had it in common. Plus, it was the next-to-last song of the Blues Breakers album, but with a lot of horns. This was another one Cream was doing almost from the beginning right through to the end. The album didn't quite do as well as its predecessor, but did hit the top 20 in the UK and top 30 in the US. Since then, Cream has had a couple of best-of collections, including a highly regarded CD of Strange Brew, a best-of from 1983. Hunt out the original pressing mastered by Dennis Drake. It's supposedly one of the best-sounding CDs you'll ever hear. Oddly enough, between Best of Cream and the double album Heavy Cream from 1972, this album was the first one to have anyone for tennis included. There was a later Very Best of Cream, a BBC Sessions disc, the four CD box set, those were the days, a stereo mono two CD set for Disraeli Gears, a big box for Fresh Cream, another box for the October 1968 West Coast shows you for Goodbye and Live Cream Volume 2, and a rumored one for Wheels of Fire. The reason Disraeli Gears didn't get a bigger set and why people were surprised we'd be getting one for Wheels of Fire is, as mentioned, many of the tapes for Cream were presumed to have been lost in the big Universal Fire in 2008. But apparently, some were found elsewhere, still waiting for official word on this. Now, in a strange way, Cream did sort of continue in a sense, just as a completely different band with completely different members. As Eric and Ginger went off and did what they did, again, more on that next episode, Jack made a solo album, Songs for a Tailor. It was named after Jeannie Franklin, who was known as Jeannie the Tailor, since she was Cream's clothing designer. She died in a car accident in 1969, so Jack dedicated the album to her. Now, this was actually Jack Bruce's second solo album. He'd recorded the jazzy Things We Like first, with some of his old bandmates from Graham Bond who'd gone on to form Coliseum, but it wasn't released until after this one. Felix Papillardi produced it. George Harrison actually returned as L'Angelo Mysterioso for the opening track, Never Tell Your Mother She's Out of Tune. A couple of songs, Weird of Hermiston and The Clear Out, were actually done as demos during the Disraeli Gear Sessions. Another song, Rope Ladder to the Moon, may have been offered to Cream. It's done in a similar fashion to, as you said, very stripped down. But the most famous song from the album is Theme for an Imaginary Western. Jack's version is very different from how Cream would have done it. It's mostly piano with John Heisman on drums and Chris Spedding on a very reserved guitar part. Now, Felix later produced the debut album by the guitarist for the Vagrants, a band he'd produced before during the Disraeli Gears era. The sessions went so well that he and the guitarist, Leslie West, decided to form a band and named it after the album they just made, Mountain. 
they played Woodstock doing songs from the uh, Leslie West album and some blues covers. Felix suggested they do theme for an imaginary Western themselves. He took keyboard and vocal duties while Leslie jammed out on the song's outro. It went over so well that they recorded it for the band's debut album, Climbing. They were in the studio around the same time Jimmy was doing some recording. He'd heard Mississippi Queen and liked what he heard, like a lot of other people did. They then played him back the first mix of another song on the album, Never In My Life. Mountain made another album, Nantucket Sleigh Ride, a half-studio, half-live album, Flowers of Evil, and a fully live album, The Road Goes Ever On. Felix left due to some drug issues, a familiar story we'll hear about someone else's issues with it next episode. So as a replacement, Leslie West and dropper Corky Lang picked Jack Bruce. West, Bruce, and Lang made two albums before they broke up over Jack's drug issues. Felix came back. Mountain did a couple more albums before splitting up. A little bit of Hendrix-related trivia here. Mountain's drummer for the 1974 Twin Peaks live album from Japan, which is the 32-minute version of Nantucket Sleigh Ride, is Alan Schwartzberg. A few years later, he beat Jimmy's drummer. Albeit five years after his death, Alan was the studio drummer for Crash Landing and Midnight Lightning. In the early 80s, Papillardi was killed by his wife, Gail Collins. To this day, the circumstances are still murky, but Collins was convicted of criminally negligent homicide and served time in prison. I remember when my buddy Ray saw Mountain open for Kiss around 1985, and I just always remember he said Leslie was talking about a friend who died, and then at the end of the song, he like threw his guitar across the stage. My guess is he was talking about Felix, and they had just done theme from Imaginary Western. I mean, wasn't, wasn't this show supposed to be about Eric Clapton? We'll get back to him now, and also in 1985. At Live Aid, Eric performed White Room for the first time since Royal Albert Hall, November 1968. In the 80s and 90s, White Room, Badge, Crossroads, and Sunshine If You Love became regular parts of his concert set list. He also played on a couple of new songs Jack made for his 1988 compilation, Willpower. Then in 1993, the year before hell froze over when the Eagles got back together, the ice started forming when Gary Moore joined Jack and Ginger in BBM, Baker Bruce Moore. It only lasted one album, but it showed those two guys could work together. Would a cream reunion be possible? That year, the band was inducted into the Rock and Roll Hall of Fame and played on stage together for the first time in 25 years. However, 12 years passed before the reunion actually finally took place. They played four dates at Royal Albert Hall in May 2005, the last of which was on my birthday, but I didn't get tickets as a present. The set list was basically everything from their live albums with the addition of the short version of Badge, Outside Woman Blues, Press Brat and Warthog, and Story Monday Blues. That song was done by Jack and Ginger during their Grand Bond days and may have been done when Jack was with Eric and John Mayall, so it was a good addition. Would have loved to have heard them do Imaginary Western, but the concerts ended up being released on CD and DVD. Everything was all well and good when they were persuaded to play some dates at Madison Square Garden in October. Now, this show I saw... And it was the first one where I paid $100 for a non-stadium show. Oh, well. 
The set was basically the same as Royal Albert Hall with the addition of Tales of Brave Ulysses. Why they didn't do that one in the UK, you got me. Unfortunately, as night follows day, Jack and Ginger started fighting again, and the run ended on a down note. That was it for the three of them. Jack passed away in 2014 and Ginger in 2019. They definitely made their mark. But Eric is still with us, and next episode, we've got a lot more to detail in the years 1969 and 1970. We've got Blind Faith. We've got Delaney Bonnie. We've got the Plastic Ono Man. We've got Howlin' Wolf. And, of course, Gary and the Dominoes. Other people moving in and out include Steve Winwood, Dave Mason, Leon Russell, Stephen Stills, Rita Coolidge, and last but not least, Dwayne Allman. A star-studded lineup next time on Keep On Grooving. I'm John Hartar. Thanks for listening. Oh, geez, I just realized it's Easter this weekend. So everybody out there, have a, a happy Easter this weekend. Um, if you're celebrating Passover, uh, have a happy Passover. Uh, I believe the IED's coming up in the, like a week and a half. So uh, have a good one of those. And uh, hopefully it'll warm up and <laughs> we'll begin to enjoy spring again. You, uh, you may have also noticed that there wasn't a commercial at the beginning of this. We're going to be running commercial free for a few months. So enjoy uh, the uninterrupted programming. It may change later. We'll just have to see. So everybody, have a happy Easter out there. <laughs>